I'm Jim Juno, and this is Lights, Camera, Author. With the 60th anniversary of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and the 10th anniversary of the original book entitled Whatever Happened to Mommy Dearest comes an updated look behind the legendary film and Joan Crawford's foray into the horror genre which would make up the bulk of her later work. After the death of her husband, Joan Crawford found herself in debt and needing to work. The success of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane would launch a series of films like Straight Jacket, I Saw What You Did, Berserk, and Trog. Now take a look back at the final act of Joan Crawford's magnificent career and at the films and TV work most biographers skim over. Whatever Happened to Mommy Dearest contains photos and rare details from behind the screen and offers a look at Joan Crawford's evolution from movie star to horror queen and literary monster and back to Hollywood icon. And I talked with John William Law, the author of the book, about whatever happened to Mommy Dearest. All right, John William Law, you have a new book out called Whatever Happened to Mommy Dearest. And this is the story of Joan Crawford's later career. And um, if I'm correct, tell me if I'm, if I get anything wrong, tell me, tell me right now, because you're not going to hurt my feelings. (laughs) No, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty correct. Yeah. Now it starts, it starts with her making um, whatever happened to baby Jane. And tell me a little bit about what got you, what got you interested in, in Joan Crawford, especially this part of her career. Uh, Well, uh, to be, totally transparent. This book is not necessarily entirely a new book. So the book was actually written way back in 2012, and it came out in time for the 50th anniversary of whatever happened to uh, baby Jane. Uh, I had written a book, a similar book on Hitchcock around the release of the 50th anniversary of Psycho. And so um, at the time, um, the, uh, you know, I had been interested in, in Joan Crawford and, and the kind of horror years um, and uh, I think it just stemmed from the fact that when I was younger, I got I, I sort of came into the understanding or the realm of Joan Crawford really through her later movies, through the horror movies. And actually, as a young kid, as a boy, I was interested in horror movies. I liked all the other all the kinds of horror movies, whether it was Jaws or Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street, all those. And then I eventually started getting into interested in a lot of the classic movies, you know, universal horror movies, Frankensteins, the Draculas, all those. And I at some point discovered, you know, got into Vincent Price. This is when I was, you know, younger. And, um, you know, I would discover different people based upon, you know, something I'd seen and then I'd want to see a bunch of their movies. And I uh, ended up seeing some Vincent Price stuff and saw some movies that he had done with William Castle. And then that sort of interested me in William Castle, which then sort of and uh, exposed me to Joan Crawford into, you know, straight jacket. And I saw what you did. And, and obviously yeah. then I ended up with whatever happened to baby Jane. And so that sort of was how it sort of transpired for me. And the book, um, again, was really aimed at looking at her career um, at that latter kind of third of her career, the, the kind of last portion of her, her career. Um, and uh, the, you know, the, the, it was interesting to me partly because of her, the challenges that she faced and um, and the trajectory that her career took because of of making this movie, which was in, in many ways sort of could be considered a blessing and a curse, I guess you could say. That's right. And when she made when she made whatever happened to Baby Jane, uh, she was was she she was battling uh, debt left over by the the death of her husband Albert Steele, correct? Yeah. So the book really begins. 
back around that period, I, I sort of introduced Joan Crawford as a as a subject to people. So obviously, if you're reading the book and you don't know much about Joan Crawford, I aim to introduce who she was and sort of how she came into being, because in many ways, people even like myself who knew you know, knew who she was based from the horror perspective, don't really get a full picture of who Joan Crawford was, was as an actress and a movie star, because at one time, even before, you know, way back when in the 1920s, before, you know, there were even talking movies, she was doing silent films and she really became, you know, she was really one of the number one box office stars and, and MGM's kind of biggest box office star for many years and right, yeah, a huge draw. And so her, the latter portion of her career, um, is sort of a, you know, you really miss that sense of who she was. But um, in the 1950s, a number of actresses, not just her, but Betty Davis as well, sort of, they sort of started to step away a little bit from the from the movie screen because the roles weren't there and the opportunities weren't there. So uh, she had sort of retired from Hollywood in a, you know, she was still working occasionally, she'd find a film project, but she wasn't really actively looking for work. She'd met her, her final, her fourth husband, Alfred Steele, um, it, while she was actually making a movie in around 1955 and she married him in, uh, I guess it was around 56 or, you know, so between 55 and 56 and they were married for close to, I don't know, maybe close to four years or something. And around 1959, he died of a heart attack and he was a big executive, one of the top executives at Pepsi-Cola. And so right. she, she, during those years where she wasn't really working very much, she would tour with him around the country and around the world, opening up bottling plants for Pepsi. And she sort of became sort of a, a unformal, informal spokesperson for them in a way. And uh, at the time they were building a really lush, lavish penthouse in New York, in New York city. And he had taken out a bunch of loans um, on his future earnings. And he'd actually had loans from her as well to basically build this, this huge, you know, fabulous New York penthouse. And, when he died, she sort of realized or quickly found out that, you know, she was in debt because of all the loans that were called in that she had to pay back the loans to Pepsi and she had to pay. She didn't get the money back because she had already loaned him from her, her own funds. And so all of those things sort of left her challenged to kind of make a living. And she ended up getting his seat on the board at Pepsi and would continue working for them for a number of years for a salary. But then at the same time, she would supplement that with whatever movie work she could get so she sort of went back to hollywood to kind of regroup and see if she could get work in in hollywood and pepsi if um now let me ask you this um because if you've seen the if for those of you out there who've seen the movie uh, mommy dearest um they didn't want her on the pepsi board according to the movie but I thought that was a i thought that was a rather dumb decision by the board of directors at pepsi because you had such a a powerful ally, a public relations coup. What? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I think that she, again, Pepsi was a, a, a soft drink company, you know, and I think the, the reality was that as, as Joan Crawford sort of aged, you know, she became less and less relevant with Pepsi. Pepsi was really mm -hmm. aiming to kind of spark a new generation and younger, you know, fans and people who were interested in, in, you know, kind of, I don't know, kids who drink, drink soda. Um, and I don't think that Joan Crawford as a, she was fine for going and opening bottling plants. And, you know, I actually knew a, a friend or someone who I knew who actually met her at one of the bottling plants. So, um, you know, she was fine with people who were sort of at an age where they knew who she was and could 
recognize her as a movie star, but in terms of kind of getting young people to kind of drink Pepsi, I don't know that Joan Crawford as a spokesperson really <laughs> would have helped Pepsi that much, but her having her on the board to replace his, his spot was sort of, I guess, a, you know, something they had to cross, they had to bear. You know, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, the magic word age when now during this time, and maybe even until today, actress, when actresses reached a certain age, Basically, a lot of the uh, a lot of the uh, movie moguls and movie uh, the the uh, movie companies decided they were past their prime. They're done. We don't want them. And and Joan Crawford was facing that same thing. Um, one of the stories I read about um, what happened, whatever happened to Baby Jane, was that uh, was it a head of MGM, uh, Louis B. Mayer, said that uh, I wouldn't give a nickel to t- see the one of those two old broads. It was it was uh, Jack Warner, Jack at Warner that's Brothers, yeah. and he Warner said Brothers. something like, "I wouldn't give a dime for those two washed up old bitches," or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was his comment, and that was true. I mean, again, that's why people like Betty Davis and Joan Crawford had trouble finding work at the time because, you know, they had. I mean, they were only really in their forties, but you know, it was again a different time. You really didn't have a lot of roles, you know, for women of that age, you were either, you know, a mother or a grandmother, but there weren't a lot of opportunities for actresses, a lot of movie parts. And, you know, you were looking at, you know, Hollywood was trying to draw in people with, you know, Westerns. John John Wayne could kind of continue working actively into his, into his elder years because of, you know, put him on the back of a horse and he'd sell movie tickets. But people didn't think that Joan Crawford and Betty Davis could do that. And whatever happened to Baby Jane in a way, you know, it sort of changed that and it, it sort of opened up an opportunity for a lot of people because it did show that actresses like that could, you know, could sell a movie. And whatever happened to Baby Jane in many ways would be and it was considered sort of almost like a B movie in terms of the the quality and the, the budget that was given to it. But uh, the fact that it had these two kind of legendary stars working together for the first time was what drew people into the movie and and that's what sold tickets and it made you know it made both women a, a lot of money but it did open up a you know a whole kind of cottage industry of these kind of movies where they were taking you know aging actresses and putting them into these horrific type stories of either they were a murderer or a victim or something right and joan and joan crawford especially uh, well william castle sees whatever happened to baby jane and says i want joan crawford for my movie straight jacket yeah, so she did, uh, again, a couple, she did a number of different movies, but yeah, William Castle actually um, was a, a director who sort of wanted, who sort of envisioned himself as a, a, a low-budget Alfred Hitchcock, wanted to kind of create the same type of stir and allure around his movies and really copied lots of scenes from Hitchcock movies and things like Psycho, but mm-hmm. uh, Castle um, did have a, a picture. He actually had used Rob, Robert Block, the author of the book Psycho, to write the screenplay for Street Jacket and um, wanted to cast a, a, a star in it. But Castle never really had uh, a huge amount of money to fund major stars. And so he had actually cast Joan Blondell, who was in a bunch of other movies, uh, another kind of comedic actress she was in, who, who's... Um, um, Adam, I'm trying to think of the movies that she was in. She was in Will, Su- Will Success, Boyle Rock Hunter. And mm-hmm. uh, she was in a Death Set with the Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn and a, a bunch of other movies. But she was originally cast in the film and she ended up injuring herself. She stepped through a plate glass window or something. Yeah. And yeah. they ended up 
casting casting Crawford in the part instead, and that created a bunch of a bunch of drama around the film. But um, but Joan Crawford ended up, you know, she he met her at a party and, and convinced her, told her about the story, and, and that Robert Block had written it, and she sort of thought, oh well, you know, the author of Psycho, and you know, sort of envisioned this as an opportunity, and, and agreed to do the movie for a cut of the proceeds again. I remember in your book you you stated that she, even though she was only making low budget films, it was always the star. I mean, she showed up like a like a star, um, with a fan, you know, being driven in a fancy car, and people, you know, I mean, it was it was like royalty, Hollywood royalty coming onto the set. Yeah, well, she grew up in you know in a day when you know that's what. Hollywood stars were. I mean, they were our version of, you know, the royal family in a way. And Hollywood, you know, they created personas around them and put them on pedestals and they, you know, treated them like that and, and created all kinds of media publicity and all kinds of things and managed their lives in many ways for many years. And so when the Hollywood system started to change and people like Joan Crawford had to kind of fend for themselves, she she did continue to kind of again, operate as she was, you know, Joan Crawford, the movie star, and she would continue to do that. And she, she did that for the rest of her life. I mean, even when she went out, she really didn't want, you know, she, fans expected her to appear as Joan Crawford and she would do that. And she, you know, so she had very specific kind of things that she would do and she wouldn't go out in public if she didn't look like a movie star. And, um, you know, she, you know, she also had other specific types of things, even though she wasn't going to make a, a huge salary on a William Castle movie, she still would be able to put in, you know, requests into her contract about things that she did where she wanted to have script approval and cast approval and things like that. And then she wanted to have her movie set set to a, you know, a, you know, 50 degrees or something on the set because she liked it to be cold. And so, you know, she got those things inserted. She also used Pepsi a lot. So she would get Pepsi inserted all her later movies. So you'd see Pepsi bottles or cases of Pepsi in the background or a Pepsi bottling machine behind her or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. She knew how to, she knew how to handle PR, didn't she? Yeah. She even had the, the uh, uh, president of Pepsi, I think, was the one who he appeared in Straightjacket as her psychiatrist in the film and gets murdered. <laughs> maybe maybe she wasn't such a good PR person for Pepsi, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the amazing thing is that is that even though these were low budget films, I mean, she she really helped out the publicity of the films. She would go and and open up. I mean, she would go on publicity tours after the film was over. Yeah. Well, she, you know, in all her later movies, after she went, after her career sort of changed, after she left MGM or a contract with MGM ended around 1945, and then she signed a contract with Warner Brothers, which is the, where Betty Davis was sort of home. Betty Davis was sort of queen of Warner Brothers, but she signed a contract with them because Betty Davis was having all kinds of problems with Warner Brothers. Um, and uh, she would make Mildred Pierce, which is a movie that Betty Davis had turned down. Yes. And um, and then she would, after that, she would end her contract with Warner Brothers. She would go into sort of become an independent, you know, actor or actress. And so she would have to acquire, you know, films or work with, you know, independent studios to kind of get projects that she would hired for. And so when she did that, she usually made a deal where she could make, you know, a cut of the proceeds. So obviously if a film, so when, when Whatever Happened to Baby Jane did well, both she and Betty Davis had negotiated contracts where they were paid, 
you know, she was paid something like only $25,000 to make whatever happened to baby Jane, but she was given 15% of the profits. Whereas Betty Davis was paid something like 35,000, but she was given only 10% of the profits. So when the movie made like $9 million, Joan Crawford ended up making out better on it because she'd negotiated this better profit sharing deal. And so then when she did movies like Straight Jacket or I Saw What You Did or, or, you know, even Berserk, you know, she would do those movies. She would agree that if the movie would make money, then she would actually make money. So when it came to, you know, promoting the movie, she would, you know, obviously go to tour and she would go to theaters and stand on the stage and talk to people about the film and promote the film on talk shows or whatever she could do to make, you know, make enough interest that, you know, she would make some money out of it. You know, and a lot of people don't, a lot of people may not remember her during the same time. She did a lot of, she did some TV work and one that really you can catch, I think it's on, um, I think it's on Comet TV every once in a while, uh, Night Gallery, the very first episode of Night Gallery, where yep. she played, you know, she, she was, she played a blind woman who uh, was going to get eyes from a donor and then the power goes out. It's a blackout and she can't see anything anyway, but it was directed by Steven Spielberg. Right. Yeah. It was one of her last, one of her last things. She did a couple of those in the seventies for NBC. She did that one. And she did another kind of episode of a show called, I think it was the sixth sense Sixth where she sense, played a yeah. similar role where she was, it was kind of dear Joan, I'm going to scare you to death or something. And you know, where she's sort of terrorized by these people. So again, they were sort of preying on her kind of, what she was known for in those last part of, part of her life. But yeah, Steven Spielberg was relatively new in directing. He'd done some episodes of things like Night Gallery and Columbo, and um, he was sort of getting his feet wet before he was doing kind of major big movies like Jaws and the Sugarland Express. And I can't remember the, some of the other movies that he was mm-hmm. doing in the early 70s. Um, but uh, yeah, he was getting his kind of his teeth, you know, kind of cut on doing, you know, these kind of, TV movies or TV shows and Night Gallery was one of them. Rod Serling's TV show after after Twilight Zone had ended. And um, yeah, the premiere episode, she was in the pilot and she did one, she was one of three, you know, pieces, but she did a small part. It was a small, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 minute, I didn't remember how long the show was, but um, yeah, she did work with him. And there was a lot of concern about the fact that he would be working with a guy. Steven Spielberg was like 20 years old at the time or something, but she addressed <laughs> him as Mr. Spielberg. And, you know, once they sort of got a, a mutual respect for each other, they actually worked relatively well together. But she had a hard time in some of those later years because obviously she was very concerned about her appearance. She was also very nervous about working around young people. And obviously TV was the same. It was sort of a different grind and the, the amount of work that they would churn out in tv is very different than films and she, she wasn't used to that type of approach so um she would do you know some of it where she could but then she also did a lot of talk shows and game shows and things that again she could still show up and appear as joan crawford and make money but um you know it wasn't quite the same as doing a major big screen movie during this time in her career did she have a favorite um a favorite director Uh, during this time, I don't, well, during that time, I don't know if I would say she did. I mean, she really did like Bob Aldrich. She, she enjoyed work. She had worked with him before whatever happened to baby Jane. Mm -hmm. Uh, She'd worked with him on a film in the late 1950s called the autumn leaves. And she had always wanted to work with him again and enjoyed 
there were reports that she'd actually had an affair with him on this on the set. Um, and uh, so she, she enjoyed working with him and she liked the film. She found that film was one of the films that she was really proud of, even though it wasn't a huge big screen success or anything. She did enjoy the movie. So she always said, you know, when are we going to work together again? Find me a picture. And then she yeah. she would also talk about well, the wanting to work with Betty Davis. So that ended up sort of being probably he would be one of the people that she sort of found, found her kind of favorite directors. Most of the films that she made after Baby Jane, I don't think she really kind of wanted to, you know, be remembered for and didn't really want to talk about. She either said that she, she made them because she needed the money or because she was bored or both. Wait, you don't think she'd want to talk about Trog? Yeah, no, I don't know that <laughs> that many people want to talk about Trog, but it was kind of her, final movie so if yeah. you kind of think about the the correct career of joan crawford it's sort of unfair to kind of ignore it i i thought I, I think i'm one of the few people who have seen trog and um yeah i, I felt sorry for joan crawford doing that movie um <laughs> I, I mean i was like oh my gosh you know i mean it it, it was it's strange um <laughs> i'll put yeah. it that way yeah it is a strange movie but uh, again i think the hard thing about it is we look back on those as retrospect but when when people you know anyone gets into a movie like uh, working on a project that for joan crawford it was always this is my next movie and so you know again when she signed on to make whatever happened to baby jane you know, it was a paycheck. She had no idea whether that movie was going to be successful or not. That movie was, you know, with as much promise and hope in Baby Jane as, and even Mildred Pierce as it would be when she signed on to do Trog. The fact that she didn't have the right advisors and people around her, you know, when you went back to like, you know, when she was under contract with places like, you know, MGM or even Warner Brothers, you know, she was getting presented with with properties, but at the time when she was, you know, in her later career, you know, she was basically getting, you know, one script. So it wasn't like she had a lot of choices. And if she wanted to make a living, she sort of agreed to do these films, even though they were probably sort of beneath her. Yeah. I, uh, one of my favorite movies of this period of her life was, I mean, I'm, I'll make, I'll make no excuses. I like straight jacket. I thought that was a, I thought that was, I mean, some people call it a guilty pleasure. Go ahead. But I really thought that was a well-done movie, considering how low budget it was. Yeah, well, Street Jacket, again, was probably the best of, you know, even for William Castle. I am a big William Castle fan. I've actually written about him. I'm trying to work on a project about him, too. But oh, cool. um, so I am a big fan of Castle's. And I think he's a fascinating guy and his career is interesting. And, you know, this was like an opportunity for him to work with A-list movie stars. He really didn't get to work with very many. And he worked with... Joan Crawford and Barbara Stanwyck and Vincent Price. And that was sort of about it in terms of his, you know, kind of ability to get, to you know, kind of draw straws into his films. But Straightjacket was sort of, you know, again, his biggest chance to kind of, you know, recreate, you know, a little bit of psycho, but at the same time recreate, you know, whatever happened to baby Jane and sort of, you know, herald in this kind of, you know, this sort of new, um, approach to after psycho there was a lot of opportunity to kind of explore more graphic details of movies so straight jacket in many ways was his chance to say you know i'm going to depict you know kind of axe murders and people are being decapitated by it wasn't really today we watch it and we think well this is sort of cheesy and it's not very graphic but at the time you know when you go back to looking at psycho um you know the hollywood censors were really really 
really stringent about right. what he yeah. could and could do. I mean, even getting them to be able to show a, a toilet in a bathroom sequence was a big deal. So for Castle, it was a chance to kind of, you know, recreate the same type of thing with a major movie star like Joan Crawford. And it is a, it is a good, a tight little movie that, you know, I enjoy watching too. Now in your book, I mean, well, I don't want to give away too many things in your book, but on the, uh, let's talk about the Amazon page on, of your book. Uh, she, after her horror queen days, she became, as you, as they call it, a literary monster. Um, I mean, basically on the book that her daughter wrote. And I was just wondering, you know, during that time, what I just thought, want your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I think that for Joan Crawford, and that was sort of where the book came from, that part of it was that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, whatever happened to Mommy Dearest was really aimed to, to kind of combine, mash up those two topics of, of Baby Jane and how that sort of uh, heralded in this kind of last act for her. And then the act sort of ends with, you know, her, her death. And then, you know, her epitaph is Mommy Dearest, right. which... You know, her daughter, Christina, you know, was sort of, I guess, to some extent, bitter about having been left out of the will and decided to write, you know, a tell-all book about her mother and, you know, her stepmother or adopted mother, I guess you could say. And um, and that was sort of where the book stemmed from. And, I, you know, I've always had, you know, I talk about a little bit in the, in the preface of the book, because for me, it was, you know, like, obviously, if you're a fan of somebody like Joan Crawford, you're obviously, I personally, I mean, I'm a fan of lots of people and, you know, Joan Crawford or Betty Davis and, you know, both women in many ways where you can respect their career. Sometimes you can look at them and go, yeah, well, they may have been better off not having been mothers um, and not having <laughs> adopted or had children. But that's the case for a lot of Hollywood celebrities. Um, and so I think in that respect, you have to sort of separate the two and say, I'm going to look at someone's film work and I'm going to judge them based upon whether I believe they had a talent and they created a career that deserved a certain level of respect and admiration. And even people like Alfred Hitchcock, there's been a lot of written about him in later oh, years yeah. that have come out that obviously you have to look at Hitchcock with a, you know, a certain lens of, you know, yes, I can respect him as an actor, but do I, or as a, as a director and a performer, but do I, do I respect him as a person and do I need to? Um, and so with, with whatever happened to, you know, Mommy Dearest, the aim was really to talk a little bit about Mommy Dearest, the book, um, in that, you know, that was Christina Crawford's view. And in some ways, you know, there is a view that, you know, obviously children who are, you know, in a, if they believe they were abused in many ways, there's like, there's a certain, you know, reality of, you know, your perception of reality is, is reality. So if you believe you were abused, then maybe you were abused or, you know, it, in your eyes, you were abused. And so in Joan Crawford's eyes, you know, she did the best she could with her children, whether she did the right thing, probably not. Um, how much she abused them is really, again, up to, you know, argument. There were people that said, oh yeah, she was not a terrible mother. She did the best she could. You know, there were people that said, yeah, she was not a great mother. She did horrible things and she should never been a mother. But um, so I think that was, but the problem really was that in the end, you know, she wasn't around to defend herself. And that, that book and that movie that came out with Faye Dunaway in many ways did sort of, you know, put a nail in her coffin of how, how people looked at her and viewed her. Um, 
And so it did impact her career for many, many years. So the, the kind of legend of Joe Crawford, he lived on with this topic of about, you know, no wire hangers and those types of things where that sort of, you know, put a cloud over the career that she had spent, you know, 50 plus years kind of establishing was sort of, you know, destroyed by, you know, a book like that. Exactly. Well, I tell you what, I really appreciate you being on the show tonight. The book is Whatever Happened to Mommy Dearest, and the author is John William Law. It originally came out in 2012, but there is a new edition that's just come out, and it's available on Amazon.com or wherever you can go in, get your you know, brick-and-mortar uh, brick stores. John, I appreciate you taking time to be on the Light the Camera author tonight. Thank you. Whatever Happened to Mommy Dearest is written by John William Law and published by Aplome Publishing. Until next time, I'm Jim Juno, and this has been Light Camera Author.